There we are. So we're, we're carrying on in Exodus and uh, we've got to the point, we've finished with the Passover and we're sort of heading out of Egypt now. And it is something that we flagged up in last night, how there were many nationalities that joined in with the Exodus. And it's a surprisingly important point to register that. It's in Exodus 12, verse 38, and it says there that many other people, or it might say a mixed multitude or an international group of people, um, went up with them and large uh, amounts of livestock, flocks and herds, herds. That's important just as we're beginning because occasionally, sometimes uh, people struggle a bit with understanding the Old Testament and they'll sort of think, well, God used to love people on the base of race and genetics. And then now he's decided not to do that and kind of love people on the basis of Jesus or something. But that, and, and I know when I say it like that, it's like sounds absolutely ridiculous, but that is around in the background very often for people um, if they're not used to reading the Old Testament and understanding what's going on. They sometimes think that the Hebrew people are defined by, uh, like as if it's all about who your ancestors were, your genetics or something like that, but it's, it was never that. It was never to do with that. And the Apostle Paul in the New Testament in Romans chapter 9 has to go to quite a few lengths just to remind people even then it's never had anything to do with race or genetics it's always only been about trusting this lord god the angel of the lord the lord jesus the eternal one the only mediator it's only ever been about that and so that was important that the egyptian people joined in with the exodus uh, and, and you'll see it again at the end of chapter 12, chapter 12, verse 48, when it says when they're doing Passover and, and in future years as they're carrying on with this Passover feast, it actually says in, in Exodus 12, verse 48, that a foreigner, an outsider, like a non-Christian, can come and join in and become part of this um ancient church at that time they they could join and then of course they could be uh, circumcised at that time as a sign of joy that was the mark of church membership it was like baptism we would say you get baptized and into into the church family back then the the, the same sign for them was circumcision and so a person could be circumcised and join in church at the time of Passover. It's like it's a good opportunity to welcome in outsiders into that ancient church family. Um, so that's that's just something for us to hold in our minds as something relevant to the whole of the Old Testament studies. But it comes out quite strongly here that the Lord always wanted all the nations to be drawn in to church, ancient church and this was a, a a wonderful time when it happened it also happens quite very impressively in the book of esther but that's for another uh study um but then notice so off they go they're leaving egypt behind and the wonder is the what what's the most amazing thing about it 
is it the freedom from from slavery and hard labor? Obviously, that was a good thing. But no, the greatest thing, isn't it, is that they are with this wonderful angel of the Lord. The Lord himself is with them, traveling with them uh, as the Lord and Savior, the Redeemer, the friend in all this way. And if you look at the end of chapter 13, as they were traveling, as they were journeying, look at if you've got your Bibles there. Exodus 13 from verse 21. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So that is that extraordinary <clears throat> vision that in this time when they are traveling in the wilderness with the Lord Jesus. And that glory, that light and the cloud, often in the Bible, clouds are associated with heavenly glory. And in the highest heaven, the throne, there are in the throne room of the Father in the highest heaven, there are all these clouds of glory. And then there's this manifestation of this in clouds and fire and light. And it's right there at the, in, um, with them. This, and it's, that's like the presence of the Spirit, the light and glory of the Spirit. And it's as if the Spirit is, is making this very strong statement like here in this cloud or uh, here it's like almost like a neon sign pointing down from the heavens to say here is where heaven and earth connect you could imagine all the nations in around in north africa uh, and in the arabian peninsula and canaan and then they go into syria and all that people nations from a vast distance away must have seen this amazing column of light and cloud connecting heaven and earth and they must have thought that whatever's going on there that is where heaven and earth are connected together this tremendous witness of the spirit to say here is the one here is the one that connects heaven and earth and that is of course where the angel of the lord is traveling there with this manifestation of heavenly glory uh, for the benefit of the church that's around him so that always seeing that and with light even in the darkness which is so powerful isn't it that in that experience they never really experienced darkness even at night time there's this tremendous heavenly light around them and so imagine the thrill of that to travel through a wilderness but always no one would have said i wonder if there really is a god yeah there he is there can you see or over there yeah, the reason we're reading books at the middle of the night is because look at that, there he is. He must have been absolutely awesome. Uh, that experience of his presence with them. And of course, in hymns and Christian sermons for thousands of years since then, we have always uh, reminded ourselves that what he was showing them, it wasn't really just for them, but that he will be with all of us in our travels and that his light will shine upon us. But the first thing that he must do is he needs to test them. I mean, we could look at the crossing of the Red Sea 
that's something that we might look at in the questions and answers and then the song and the destruction of the uh, Egyptians that, that they're drowned there. But when they get into the wilderness itself, there's this very urgent matter of the first thing on the agenda is hunger and thirst as they're traveling to Sinai, Horeb, the mountain of God. And the, the, it's almost as if the first thing the Lord Jesus in his leading of them wants to do is to find out what they most care about. What is in their hearts? What do they, does, what do they really desire? Do you see how he does it? So <clears throat> he makes them thirsty and hungry. And how would they respond to that? The hunger and the thirst. The deepest issues in life are about our deep desires. What do we crave? Where do we think we're going to get life from? This is why as churches we fast sometimes, isn't it? Because we'll go for perhaps just for a day throughout, miss our breakfast, our lunch, maybe eat in the evening, whatever. But we want to, uh, we experience that sense of our body crying out for to demand uh, food. And we are trying to tell ourselves when we fast, no, I don't need food. I can live without food or even ultimately I won't live without, you know, I could die if I don't get any. But that doesn't matter. These desires that are demanding food are not so important as the Jesus. Jesus is the bread of life. I need him more than I need physical food. That's why we fast to teach ourselves that to teach ourselves to say no to the demands of the of the moment, those passions and appetites to say, no, that is not going to shape me. What I need more than that is Jesus. So that's what they were tested with straight away. And uh, there is there's a test of water and there's a test of manner. And that business of the manner is tremendously important because that's in chapter 16 there. Because, um, oh, be, and look, because if you look in chapter 16, verses one to nine, I won't read it all out. They grumbled. And you'll see this issue of grumbling come up again and again. It actually is first in chapter 15, verse 24. They grumbled. What, do, what can we drink? Now in chapter 16, they grumbled, we need, uh, more, we need something to eat. They grumble again in chapter 17, verse 3, again about water. Grumble, grumble, grumble. And at first, you, it sounds into us in, in our language and things. It's like, oh, grumbling, it's not a big deal. It's a bit annoying, but it actually isn't. And the Lord regards this as one of the very worst sins we ever commit, this sin of grumbling because it's the opposite of gratitude. And it shows that we don't really love him or trust him. Because grumbling, it can often be something that is, um, you know, it's, yeah, we need some water. That was what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink. It's kind of a legitimate thing to be thinking about. But what grumbling does is it start, it's discontented with the Lord and his provision. It's saying, I don't trust him. Why has he brought us out here to die? 
I don't think the Lord's got anything for us. I don't trust him. That's where grumbling comes from. And here it's flagged up as a deep problem. And then as we go on through the wilderness wanderings, we'll see that that attitude of grumbling is horrendously bad. And what is just seems a small thing here becomes a deep sickness in those ancient people. And it's a warning, of course, to church in every age, isn't it? That we can just start to, once we give room to this, like, oh, well, yeah, I don't really like this, or that's not how I do it, or I'm not happy about this. And, and it can grow and grow and then absolutely destroy a person and destroy a church. Grumbling is one of the most terrible spiritual diseases uh, that we can ever have. And it comes out here early because the Lord's saying, I want to get into this issue of what is in your heart what do you really desire are you content with the with the fellowship with the living god himself in christ or is that not enough do we trust him to provide for us or not so the issue of the water there is quite a deep business isn't it because um it's in chapter 17 if you look down in chapter 17 Oh, just before we go out of chapter 16, the manner is given every day, isn't it? And the Lord says to them, don't, don't get loads of it. Like, trust me that I will provide enough for you every day. Trust that I will give you daily bread. But some people didn't trust him, did they? And they tried to gather up loads and put it in the freezer and like make some packages of it up and think, no, just to be on the safe side, I'm going to collect a load of it, get it in the freezer. Uh, that way we just, just as we sure, because you never know, he might not provide it tomorrow. And that's the problem, isn't it? They gathered loads more than they needed for that day because deep down they're thinking, I don't really trust the Lord to give me what I need tomorrow. And then, of course, what the Lord did is anything, if they tried to gather more than they needed for the next day, it just became rotten and full of maggots. And so there's that lesson that he was teaching them. Do you trust me to give you what you need every day? And that lesson was there. And so hence, when Jesus so many years later, sort of uh, 1500 years later, teaches us how to pray, he says, when you pray, say, give us today our daily bread. I'm only asking for what I need for today. And he re so he, Jesus is making sure the church in every age learns the lesson of the manner that we ask for what we need today and, we, and we, we leave tomorrow. There's enough troubles for tomorrow. We trust him for today. It's a deep lesson. But that issue of the water in chapter 17 is a deep thing. Because if you notice, there's grumbling again in verse three, have we seen? But if you look at verse seven, Moses called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? So you see, they don't really trust that he's with them. And then have a look at Psalm 95. We won't look at it now because we haven't got time, but in there in the church of england in, and in my church we every day we think about psalm 95 we read it as part of morning prayer psalm 95 because psalm 95 says though the lord's a great god he's made everything in the heavens and on the earth and the sea and he rules over all the gods he's tremendous let's rejoice in the strength of salvation that we have in jesus but 
if we hear his voice, we must not harden our hearts as we did at Massa and Meribah. And the Lord swore on oath in his anger that they would not enter into his rest. So it's that thing that the Lord has all the strength and this tremendously joyful confidence in salvation. But if we hear his voice, we it's like, what's this issue of thirst? What do we thirst for? Do we thirst for him? And here we were sensitive to hear his voice. And that when we hear his voice and we, we study the scriptures, we're listening for him. We want to fellowship with him. And that when we feel that, we're like, Lord, I just want to hear your voice. That is living water to me. Or each day we have to face this choice. Or do I harden my heart and say, no, I'm going to handle things today. My strength, my wisdom. I'm going to find life from other things. I'm going to listen to my desires because they are the guide I'm going to use for what I really need in life. What do I feel that I need? And then if we do that, we harden our hearts and then we're deaf to him. And then the Bible's warning us that the Lord says when his people look for life in these other ways, he says, I swore on oath they will get no rest, no peace if they look for life anywhere other than me. So that's that tremendous lesson. All of these are preparations as they're going towards Sinai, Mount Horeb. It's a way. It's a kind of way that he's saying, let's leave Egypt behind. Like you, the, all those desires of the flesh and the world and focusing our attention on this passing age. Let's leave all that now and let us enjoy one another as we go to worship the Father together. Then, of course, in chapter 18, there's this tremendous chapter where Jethro helps Moses organize church into lots of small local churches, effectively. Or Because it's, remember, it's two to three million people in this church exodus. Um, 600,000 adult men and then, you know, all the uh, same aged women and children and so on. So we we're usually people think of it as between two and three million people are in this exodus. And they, they have to be organized. And then the, the Jethro says, look, let's get them organized into lots of smaller church gatherings. But then there's that wonderful verse 21 where the advice is given, um, select capable people from among everybody, those who fear God are trustworthy and hate dishonest gain. Fear God, trustworthy, hate dishonest gain. What's so interesting, isn't it, that those, that's the basic criteria that's used by the Apostle Paul when he writes to Timothy and Titus and they're establishing, and then in the book of Acts also, when the New Testament churches are looking for what are the qualities of the leaders that we need to find, they go back to this verse, Exodus 18, verse 21. Those, the, those criteria are the ones that the church in the New Testament say, yes, those are the correct criteria that were isolated 
in Exodus 18, 21. Well, they get in chapter 19, they get to Sinai, Horeb. Here it is. The first day of the third month, they came to Sinai. The mountain of God, where this story began, when, when Moses was there tending the sheep, and it's this mountain of God. Why is this issue of a mountain such a big deal? Well, you'll be aware if you're used to reading the Bible throughout your life, it's in the Psalm, this issue of mountains, the mountain of God. Sometimes it's called Zion, Zion, the mountain of God. It's there all the way through the Bible. The prophets have this image of this mountain of the Lord. It, Revelation has, has a very strong imagery of this idea of this divine mountain where the Lord dwells on high in, in, on this mountain. If you've thought about the Garden of Eden, this may be something, I don't know whether you've ever thought about this, but do you remember in the Garden of Eden, four rivers flow out from the Garden of Eden. And uh, normally, you know, rivers flow down. What's the source for four mighty rivers that water, it says, the whole earth from the Garden of Eden? And this idea of four rivers flowing down from a mountain, this mountain of God, which is at the heart of the Garden of Eden. It's that image. Can we imagine it then? That there's this kind of big symbolic thing about a mountain, this high, high place where the Lord God dwells. And so there's that, all that imagery is going on. It comes up a lot in the Bible, actually, this idea of the Lord God, this mountain and the heights where the Lord dwells, and something to think about. And then how, um, do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel, where these human beings are trying to build a high thing to get up into the heavens? And the Lord says, no, that isn't the way. You can't come to me that way, you, you know, because we've been shut out. We've been shut out. We can't build some high thing. And they're all the way through the Bible where people make the high places with pagan worship and the Lord to strike down those high places and the idols and the images on the high places. That idea of trying to get up to the heavens. So when the Lord brings these people to Sinai, to the man of God, he's really saying, I will give you the right way to get up to the high place where the Lord dwells. This is the right way. I'm the right way. Let me teach you how I can take you safely to the high place of the Lord's dwelling. Deep things to think about. Now, when they get there, one of the first things he tells them, and this is a verse that Peter quotes in his first letter, it's in Exodus 19, verse 6. And the Lord says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A holy nation and a kingdom of priests. There's something quite powerful about that. Peter uses that as, a, as like right at the center of his first letter, that going back to this verse as the identity of church, that one, it's important that we're holy. Holy means to be set apart, separate, focused, dedicated, that our focus is on this living God and that we're not caught up in our, the, the desires and passions of this passing age. We treat those things lightly, but passionately 
our hearts. We love the Lord God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that makes us very different. That's what holy means, that we say no to the deceitful desires of this passing age. And we're saying yes to this living God. And we're seeking life in him. We're not seeking life in our deceitful desires and that so there's that holy but also notice that we are priests and this idea is what's a priest about well the priest represents the living god to the world that in the lord god is going to show them that if you live this way that i'm telling you you will show off to the world what the lord god looks like so do you remember um there's those those lovely things that, that um, John in John chapter one says no one has ever seen the father at any time, but Jesus, the only begotten God, has made him known. So we're like, ah, Jesus makes known the unseen God. Yes, we could understand that. And that's an important part of the whole Bible. But in one John chapter four, I think verse 12 he actually says on another occasion, no one has ever seen God at any time, but if we love one another and live the way he's told us to do, then God's made manifest through us. So it's as if like um, there's Jesus and his body church. And if we live the way that he tells us to do, join to Jesus, caught up in him, then we show to the world the reality of the living God, we are priests to the world, showing him off. But the priest also brings the world to the living God. And so we show the world what the living God looks like, but we're also gathering the world into church to bring them to God. And that rule, that fundamental identity of, of who we are, what we are as church, ambassadors of God to the world, and then bringing the world to the living God through Jesus. That is what church is all about. Now, why has he brought them to Sinai? Well, it's to, this is, remember, the, 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 they've been with the Lord. This is the Lord himself who's been with them, close to them, manifestly with them, living among them for this journey out of Egypt to Sinai. He's brought them through the Red Sea, all of that. So the Lord is with them, but the Lord wants to introduce them to somebody else called the Lord. He wants them to meet someone else who's called the Lord, who is going to come and be hidden from their sight in, the, in this, what is called the mountain is going to be clothed in clouds of thick darkness so that they can't see what's inside the cloud, right? But the Lord says, I'm going to introduce you to somebody called the Lord, and that's why I've brought you here. The Lord, like you, what am I saying? Have a look down at verses 10 and 11 of Exodus 19. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, make them wash their clothes, be ready by the third day, because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Isn't that a strange thing? The Lord is speaking to them, to Moses and saying, listen, you need to get ready because the Lord's going to come on the third day. 
the Lord is speaking about someone called the Lord's going to arrive. And when he arrives, they have to be really careful. They have to do everything exactly the way this Lord tells them to do it. Because he is the only one who can make it safe for people to approach into the presence of the Father, really. That's what this is about, isn't it? How can it be safe for us who have been exiled from the garden of God? How can we draw near safely? How can we go through the fire? How can we get safely through the fire? Well, we saw it in chapter three. This one, the angel of the Lord can make it safe so the fire will not consume us. And so the Lord is saying, listen, I've brought you to this place because I, I, I want to introduce you to my father. I want you to safely come to know him. I, the whole point of everything is to bring you into this fellowship of the life of God, to know the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. That's why I brought you here. So get yourselves ready because it's going to happen. On the third day, he will manifest himself. And then there'll be the darkness and the thunder and the lightning and all of that will happen. But he says, like, first of all, don't just come rushing up. Like you must you don't come near until I tell you to. That very clear sense that only Jesus can make it safe for us to come into the life of God like that. Um, and then but he says, now, when the trumpet blast sounds or the ram's horn sounds, then you must then approach, then approach with confidence, because that is the summons for you. When that trumpet of God sounds, the ram's horn, when you hear me sound that trumpet, when you hear that sound, that's me summoning you in. And you can draw near then and come up onto the mountain and you will be safe because I will make it safe for you. But um, notice what happens when the trumpet does sound that loud sound in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and light, lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. And then it says everyone in the camp, you're hoping it says everyone in the camp rejoiced at the thought that they would enter into this fellowship, but they didn't. They trembled. And then if you look at, at um, chapter 20, turn, if it's, well, it's over the page for me, chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, so they can see the fire burning, really, and they don't, they, what do they think? Do they think that's okay? It's all right because Jesus has made it safe for us. We can approach with confidence, you know, boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence through Jesus. Let's, no, they didn't do that. Notice what it says. They trembled with fear and they stayed at a distance. They didn't trust that Jesus could make it safe for them. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. I find this perhaps the saddest verse in the Bible because the father has just spoken to them, the Ten Commandments, and they didn't die. 
but they do not approach. Why not? Because they don't really trust Jesus. They don't get how he makes it safe for them to do that. It's really sad. It's really sad. And of course, what are we waiting for now in the whole of history? When we step back a bit, just for a second, we're waiting for that trumpet to sound, aren't we? It's spoken about in the scriptures. The trumpet will sound and Christ will return and the dead will rise. That trumpet, when it sounds, it means the living God is coming to dwell with us. And we will be ready and run towards him, confident in Christ. Others will try to get away, stay away, back away, hide in caves because they don't want to be near. It's not safe for them. Isn't that interesting? We still are waiting for that trumpet to sound and then for us to be drawn into this presence of God forever and ever. Will we be, will we rush towards him or will we shrink back in doubt and fear? It's interesting. It happened then. And so, of course, what the Lord has to do when he sees that, the Bible says that all this law system was given because of sin. And it's uh, like particularly the early church fathers always put it, said it wasn't just any sin. It was this particular sin that was the worst sin they did because it showed they didn't understand. They didn't trust him. They backed away. And so the Lord basically says, listen, I'm going to have to get, take, send you back to school. I'm going to have to put you in the primary school of theology and I'm going to have to set up a system that explains who Jesus is and how he can make it safe for you to draw near with confidence. And that's what the whole system of the law is. The Apostle Paul says it's a school teacher to bring us to Christ. It, that was what he had to do. He said, like, back to school then. And uh, one of the things, you know, when you go to school, particularly primary school, you love making models and things, don't you? And making things out of cardboard and paper and cereal boxes and paper mache and things like that. And all that sort of stuff to make craft activities to help you understand things. Well, that is exactly what he's going to get them to do. He's going to get them to make a model of the universe and then show them what it all means. So it's like an audio, visual, visual, tangible activity so that then they can understand how the universe works, who Jesus is and why he can make it safe for them to approach. It's a powerful thing. Well, those Ten Commandments, there they are, Exodus 20. And um, what are they? It's interesting how we hear them is all the difference in the world. See, if we are not a person who trusts Jesus, what people think of the Ten Commandments as is hard demands, entry requirements, as if the Lord is saying, I demand that you achieve conformity to these things. And if you do and score a sufficiently high mark, maybe you will pass the entrance requirements to get to heaven. That's how a person hears it if they're one of the ones who shrinks back in fear. They're like, oh, the Lord, listen, 
He's making impossible demands. I'm frightened of him. He's trying to take life away from us. He is, he is a hard taskmaster. You remember that sort of attitude in the parables of Jesus? He's a hard taskmaster. He's trying to get out of us what we can't provide. That's how it sounds if you don't trust Jesus. And people think of that as that the living God as a kind of moral examiner who's always like with a clipboard trying to go, ah, you failed, take cross, cross, or occasionally, oh, I'll give you a little tick for that, tick. And then, you know, that's as if he's constantly going through checklists to, to, to weigh up how uh, have we got more good or, or more bad and that absolute rubbish that isn't what they are if you look at the exodus 20 verse 1 and 2 god spoke all these words i am the lord your god who brought you out of egypt out of the land of slavery i redeemed you so he at the beginning he says i'm not talking here to people who are not part of church I, to the people who are not part of church, they need to come and join church. Church is the people, he's already redeemed them. He's already set them free from slavery. They're not entry requirements. They're a gift to people who are already in, already redeemed, already part of his people, already supposed to be enjoying his fellowship. And they're not demands. Think of them as promises. So when it says, you shall not have, you shall have no other gods ahead of me. Now, you could, if, you, if you're of the bad attitude, you'll go, oh, he's, he's like making a demand. But if you come in and you're like, oh, isn't it wonderful? He's redeemed us through Jesus. He's bringing us in. He, and it's more like a promise. I promise you that you are going to be set free from all these gods that trouble you. And that you, I know sometimes you give your heart and mind to idols and gods, but you shall in the, the, you shall be set free from all of them. You shan't be people who are, who are captured by idols. You won't be people who misuse my name. You shan't be like that. You should be people who use my name with love and honor. And of course, if we really belong to him, we're like, oh, that's a wonderful thought. I can't wait to be completely redeemed from all the slaveries of this passing age. I can't wait to be a person who has no hatred, no deceit, no lust in me. Thank you for these promises of the kingdom that you're bringing us into. You see, totally different attitude, whether if you trust Jesus and you belong to him and you love him, these 10 commandments, these 10 words, are lovely words that make us rejoice. But if we don't belong to him, they see that we shrink away. We're like, oh, I don't like this. This is too hard. It's a totally different attitude. So what he does in chapters 21 to 23 is he spells out more of how he wants them to live as his people in every aspect of life, from the way they do business and handle money and family life and everything he's really saying i want all of life to be filled with grace and truth and love and beauty let you 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 need to be you know i'm going to teach you how to walk in my ways and to leave the selfish 
uh, greedy slavery of the pagan world behind. It's, it's, it, there's loads of lovely things there. But it comes at the end of that section. There's this amazing thing. If you've never, like you've probably read Exodus many, many times, but just look at Exodus 24 verses 9 to 11. There's an extraordinary thing happens at the end of this kind of introduction into church life where we come to know the Father through Jesus in the power of the Spirit, where we're living it out and showing it off to the world and the world to be drawn in. And there's this wonderful sort of conclusion to that. And it's in Exodus 24, 9 to 11, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. They saw God. That's amazing, isn't it? What is going on there? Because it says no one has ever seen the Father at any time. So who've they seen? Who've they seen? Well, remember Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the visible form of the invisible God, and he always has been. Here it is. They saw the God of Israel. And look, it goes on to give us a little, some details. Under his feet, was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky, as the heavens, as bright blue as the heavens. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. Isn't that amazing? That they were, they may have had that fear Oh, we can't draw near to God. We must shrink away and back away. We can't trust him. And then the Lord says, well, look, if you're not all going to come, I'm going to insist on 70 leaders. 70 is an important number because in, Ex in Genesis, back in Genesis 11, all the nations of the world, is a, there's a thing called the Table of Nations back there in Genesis. And it has all the nations of the world listed as 70. Symbolically, in the Bible, the number 70 represents all the nations of the world, everybody in the world. So it's as if the Lord says, OK, look, if, if you're all if so many of you don't trust me and you're backing your way, let me have like 70 representatives representing the whole world. And I'm insisting some of you at least come up onto the mountain and meet with me at least. Let us have some fellowship together and I'll give, you, I'll give you an experience of heaven itself with me. And if you notice, that it, there's a, that pavement of lapis lazuli. Other people who have these heavenly visions in the Bible see that same thing, this pavement of lapis lazuli. Uh, a, a, an easy one to see is in Ezekiel 1 verse 26 and Ezekiel 10 verse 1. Ezekiel 1 verse 26, if you're taking notes, and Ezekiel 10 verse 1, where particularly think of that first, Ezekiel chapter 1, where he has that tremendous vision of the Son of Man, this, this human-like figure who is divine and carried by the living creatures. That's how the book of Ezekiel opens. Extraordinary powerful vision of Jesus who comes, and it's there, lapis lazuli, his throne and his surroundings. Moses sees it here with the 70 elders. Amazing. And they ate and drank. I'm, I mean, it's got to be bread and wine, hasn't it? But um, isn't that a lovely proof that back in chapter three, and it was just Moses seeing um, 
uh, it was just Moses seeing the, the, the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord says, yes, it's safe to come onto this mountain. And I want to bring you all and I can make the fire safe. And here, at least 70 of them anyway, experience that. Well, just for our final few minutes together, I'm just going to give a few notes about that um, craft activity that the Lord got them to do when he got them into theological school. Because he says, listen, OK, I get that you don't understand how Jesus is able to make it safe for you to come into the heavenly realms and experience the life of God. I can see that you don't trust him and that you back away. So what we're going to do is we're going to make a model of the universe. And using that model, I will give you activities to do with that model. And I'll even give you an outfit. So if someone can dress up and, and pretend to be Jesus, the, the great high priest, the, the mediator person, one person, I'll give you like, an, a, a, like a dressing up outfit for that person. And you can make this craft activity of a model of the universe. And I'll tell you things to do with that little model all, you know, every day throughout the year, different things to keep it interesting. And if you do all that, you will get why you can trust him and why you can confidently draw near to the living God. So the, the heart of the, the law is this thing building called the tabernacle. And uh, you'll know it's kind of like, think of it as a rectangle. And then it's, it's, it's actually just a single room that has a curtain that divides it into two rooms, right? Single room, a single building, a rectangular room that has a curtain that divides it into two rooms. And that idea is, it's a model of the heavens and the earth. You'll remember all the way through the Bible, the way that the universe is described, they don't really use the word universe in the Bible. In the New Testament, you occasionally get the word cosmos, but we, we don't, it, the Bible basically doesn't do that. It says the heavens and the earth as that two level way of describing the universe as if there's two compartments almost the heavens and the earth or the seen and the unseen that's another way of doing it but it's that can you see it so the lord says i want you to make a model of like a and it's and we'll put a little curtain in to help it to be like heavens and earth and then make that and then i'll show you what to do with that and then you'll understand jesus but Here's the thing. If you've got your Bible open and look at Exodus 25, he first of all says, right, get some materials together so we can make do this craft project. Um, and that's the first few verses, getting all the materials together to do the craft project. And then he says, um, verse eight, let them make a sanctuary for me and I'll dwell among them. And then notice this phrase, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then that phrase, make this exactly according to the instructions I've given you, comes up. If you're taking notes, it's there in 25 verse 8 and 9. It comes up in 25 verse 40. It comes up in 26 verse 30 and 27 verse 8. 
So the Lord kind of gives them some little blocks of instructions. Do this craft project first, then check that you've done it exactly as I told you. Now, next craft project. Here's the next stage of the craft project. Check that you've done it as I told you. Uh, think about it. Right now, the next stage of the craft project. OK, so it's divided up into sections and do this bit of the craft project first, then do this bit, then do this bit. And each stage, think about what you've done because you'll learn things. Now, then, this is the big point. How? What is the first thing that he gets them to make? Like he's going to get them to make a model of the universe, right? But the first thing he does is not the, the building that's a picture of the universe. He first of all tells them to make three pieces of furniture. The Ark of the Covenant, which is like a throne with angels on either side, a table for bread, and an oil lamp. Three pieces of furniture that would have just been there out in the wilderness, not in a building or anything, because he hasn't even made a building for them to go in at this stage. But the building that represents the universe he hasn't got it. How can you have anything? You can't make something before you've got a universe to put in it. Well, you can't. There's nothing older than the universe, is there? What three things? What three are older than the universe that you would need to understand? That's right. You're thinking it and you're right. It's the, it's the Trinity, isn't it? He's like, I want you to make three pieces of furniture to represent God the Father seated on a throne surrounded by angels. I want you to make a piece of furniture to represent God the Son, the table of presence with the bread on it that the high priest will serve at. I want you to make an oil lamp, oil, light, warmth to represent the Holy Spirit but make them before you make a model of the universe, because these three who are the one living God, they were there before the universe ever existed, for infinite ages before the universe ever existed. And if you want to understand the universe and yourselves, start with this living God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the ark, the table, the oil lamp. Well, that's what they did. It's all there to be seen. And then they make the tabernacle building first as a single room and then he says because it's as if he's saying the heavens and the earth are not supposed to be divided it's all supposed to be united together as one room and of course you'll be thinking but well, isn't at the end of the bible when jesus returns don't heaven and earth become joined together again yes and when jesus dies do you remember what happens that curtain that was in the temple that divided the room into two you remember when Jesus died, that curtain got ripped down as if to say that barrier between heaven and earth where the fire is. And when they made that curtain, they were to embroider cherubim onto it. Remember why? Because, yeah, at the end of Genesis 3, cherubim guard the way, the barrier between the heavens and the earth. And so, but when Jesus dies, it's torn down as if to say the fundamental division between the heavens and the earth is gone in Jesus. You sh if you understand him and you trust him, you will confidently be able to come into this heavenly presence and know that we really do have fellowship with the living God, safe fellowship with the living God. All of that, there's loads of more little details we could see. 
in Exodus, but our time's gone. The last little thought to give us is right at the end of the whole book, when uh, all, the, all these instructions are given of how to set up this, this model of the universe, and they, he gives instructions to say, now I need someone to play the role of a high priest, and I've got, I want them to put on this dressing up outfit, and each element of that dressing up outfit is telling us things about Jesus. He's the one mediator. And remember, only one person was ever allowed to go between the earthly room and the heavenly room in that tabernacle model. Only one person and only once a year. There was only one mediator in that little picture. And that was this high priest. And when he got the outfit on, and once, once per year, when he was wearing that outfit, he was allowed to go through the barrier into the heavenly room. And so they could all go, ah, oh, so there is, there is somebody who's going to make that possible, not in a little model here, but in the actual heavens and the earth. Oh, yeah, there's so much we could say about that. But right at the end of Exodus, in Exodus 40, Moses sets up church life just as instructed with everything centered on this tabernacle and they and he does it all the way that the lord's told him to do it and there's this lovely thing that happens verse exodus 40 verse 33 and with this i end i hand back to owen as soon as i've read this it says moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard and so moses finished the work then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses couldn't even enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted out, they would set out and so on. It never left them. And there's that lovely concluding thought that if we do church the way he's asked us to do it, trust him, that the way he describes throughout his whole word, that's the way to do church if we do it and set things up the way he's asked us to do it his glory his glory can come his glory he will feel welcome to live among us and show his glory i'm done hand back to owen